Hi, this is Mike Skill, and you're listening to Rock at Night with Vlad. This is Rocket Knight. I'm Vlad. The origins of Rocket Knight are deeply rooted in both the music and people of Detroit. So I'm ecstatic that tonight's guests comprise a trio of Detroit Rock's history's most illustrious sons. As a founding member of Power Pop Mainstays of the Romantics, Mike Skill has been the group's longtime guitarist and principal songwriter. He's been the architect of the band's numerous rousing hits, which are still staples on radio, TV, and film worldwide. Mike can indeed rock you up. Lately, he's also been an active solo artist with his most recent release being the knockout track 67 Riot, which not coincidentally includes the collaboration of our other guest today. The word revolutionary tends to be overused in rock, but I struggle to think of any other way to describe Brother Wayne Kramer. The co-founder of the Motor City 5, yeah, the MC5. Wayne has been a revolutionary both in sound and activism. His guitar work and stage bravado forged a strident, sonic, and polemic template for generations of guitarists who wanted to challenge both the musical and social status quo. Without Wayne, there is no punk rock. Now a solo artist, soundtrack composer, prisoner, rehab activist, and even celebrated author, Wayne brings his identifiable guitar work and a palpable urgency to Mike's Riot single. And last but certainly not least, we're joined by a dear friend of Rock at Night, producer Chuck Alcazian. The Buddha of the Detroit music scene, Chuck has a resume sparkling with collaborations with an array of artists like Soundgarden, Pop Evil, Bob Seger, Yvonne Kral, and now Mike Skill. Chuck's approach is all about the song, and he certainly brings it with his production of Mike's single. Gentlemen, a warm welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Vlad. Mike, how did 67 Riot come together? Uh, well, I lived through, uh, I think Wayne went through it too, probably, uh, 67, 1967, uh, the riot in Detroit, uh, happened. It was happening around the country, uh, civil, uh, unrest. And, um, I was about 12 years old or 13. I had discovered the MC5 a couple of years before that by the single, uh, looking at you and a, a couple other thing, other things. And, uh, I had a little, a little garage band at the time. And uh, this all happened in that year, and it was the love and peace generation, and it was this riot, and it was just a really uh, firebrand time. I mean, anything anything could uh, go up at any, any minute, and there was so much creativity going on art-wise and music-wise, culturally, everything was changing. And uh, these days happened in Detroit, and the National Guard was down the street from my house, helicopters, the news was uh, over bleeding it if you want for, for a bad way to put it but uh and uh instilling a lot of fear on folks on the east side and around uh around the areas outside of the center of detroit uh they had it like they were gonna like gangs were uh gonna come into your neighborhood and that's what i remember and um we had a curfew six o'clock or six thirty, and uh and i'm learning rock and roll and i'm listening to mc5 and i'm listening to every motown and everything that's going on in the city and then you fast forward to the 90s, and uh, uh, I'm, I moved to Portland, and I started writing a lot of songs on my own, uh, finishing, just finishing complete songs uh, for my own perspective. And um, I, I had this idea that I, I wanted to always do something with uh, 67 Riot uh, in my head. And the name came about, some lyrics came about, a groove. I had the groove down just for the first part of the verse. The words started uh, really, really pulling together, and uh, we recorded it. I recorded it in my little studio uh, outside the city in a little schoolhouse. And um, that's where I finished it, pretty much. All the other parts came together. Recorded it. Uh, I met Chuck, came together with Chuck, and I had some other songs. Uh, he took those songs and, and took it to the next level. They were mixed. They were mixed at, 
at my studio, but they really went to the really incredible. They just sound great. That's pretty much it. And then I, uh, I always thought I'd, I'd get to, to my songs. I want to have other people come in and play on those songs. People I grew up with, friends, other musicians. And so Wayne was the next, uh, I mean, I was so inspired by uh, Wayne and Fred, Fred Sonic Smith, uh, yeah. as the way they melded their guitar orchestrated, like orchestrated guitars. I mean, you have Allman Brothers that did that. The Five did it in a, a really raw, factory, city, uh, aggressive way. And um, if you're a guitar player, it's it's uh, the two guys you want to listen to about learning how to write and put guitars together and form songs and and then you got the attitude and the energy and the whole the whole imagery around it. But um, they're really uh, part of my uh, growing up uh, in a big way with the drummer. I was a drummer from high school. I had the Romantics, Jimmy. We both were fanatics. We were all fanatics for the five and all the stuff coming out of Ann Arbor. And we're, we're, we're 14 years old. We couldn't get in the Grandy yet. But yeah. Uh, Anyway, that's how it happened, and Chuck took it to the next level. Here we are, and we, I called uh, Chuck, uh, I called uh, Wayne, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, asked him if he would like to check it out, and uh, I sent it over. He he, agree- he liked it and uh, agreed to play on it, and I'm really fortunate to have someone like that to be playing on it. Oh, it's an incredible single, and you can hear the, we hear your, your song craft for me is legendary. But to have that that sonic icing that that Wayne brought to it and Chuck's ability to get the lyrics out of that mix, I really it's really very endearing. And uh, all three of you gentlemen, I'm a kudos for that. Really good. It's hard to explain how songs come, but that's just the way it did. It just kind of happened. Things just happened. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting the timing now. The single was, I think, initially conceived like a historical piece because obviously there's some resonance with you in terms of what happened when you were when you were when we were all younger. But now it's very urgently topical for the whole world, obviously in light of all the shocking events that happened and this thing of how we've come of kind of a full 360 from that. What goes through all of your minds as you see the song and its subject matter as it hits the streets now? Well, I don't know. Anyone else want to take it? Like Wayne, you know as well as anybody, the dissonance that was in the streets and there was in the society at that time. And you're seeing a song now kind of reprise that. Does it make you think back? Has have things changed? Has have our social dynamics really fundamentally changed at all in that period of time? Or are we just kind of have we been just treading water and we're kind of back to where we were at that point in time? We're not treading water. Um, you know, the rebellion of sixty seven in Detroit um was a wake up for the nation. And, and uh, we're, we're in another level of that now. Um, you know, police have been murdering black people forever in America, since the beginning of America. Um, but it's really with the coming of cell phone cameras, um, everybody knows about it now, or at least white America knows about it. Um, so you know, to to reach into the past to a touchstone like the rebellion in Detroit or in Newark or in Watts. Because remember, the whole country uh, went up in flames. Uh, I, th- I think traditionally, you cannot keep your boot on people's neck uh, without them rebelling at some point. They're going to buck. Um, it, it, in the heart of every person is the desire to be free and to be respected and to be considered. And uh, I think that's where we're at now. Um, certainly with the, the, the coming of um, um, this uh, developer in chief, uh, this buffoon that we have who's parading as president, um, people have had it and I don't blame them. I've had it too. Indeed. Well, police brutality and incarceration are themes that have manifested very f- prominently in your life and work, Wayne. Uh, the MC5's performance at the Apocalypse, that was the 68 convention in Chicago, is still very is to- spoken very reverentially. And your encounters with the law and the pen have been well chronicled, like in your autobiography. From your perspective, has the 
order or the position of the police state in the U.S. materially changed since those heady days back in the Belle Isle and, and uh, Chicago riots? Not really, because they're still the biggest gang in town. And, you know, they have uh, legitimacy on their side. They have guns and they have badges. And they're, you know, authorized to use them. That dynamic hasn't changed. I, I like the idea that's emerged recently that... Um, you know, a policeman with a gun is not the best idea for all of society's challenges. You know, that maybe a mental health worker could go in and, and have a more successful outcome. Maybe a social worker could go in or someone that was trained in dealing with volatile situations. You know, there are um, groups of volunteers um, what do they call them, interrupters that are going into um, neighborhoods where there's heavy gang activity and trying to defuse uh, volatile situations. I think these are all creative solutions to the problem of uh, an overarmed police um, quick to pull the trigger and, and not even ask any questions later. Mike, you're in the Portland area. I believe Portland's embraced that model to some extent, hasn't haven't they, with regards to more uh, intermediate? Well, Portland's pretty. Uh, uh, they've uh, you got a lot of young people. It's a lot of young people, and they've got a lot of new ideas. And uh, the young kids are coming mm-hmm. up the uh, and not standing for it. And uh, they've got the internet, like Wayne's saying, and uh, uh, black folks are out there, and um, and it's really actually peaceful until it gets to that point where they're uh, downtown and then right. there's a few kooks that will start a little few fires, but mm-hmm. it's a one block area, one or two block area. And uh, then you've got cops ramming people that are doing mm-hmm. nothing. They're just ramming them on the yeah. ground and then knocking them silly and, uh, and, and other yeah. things really messing them up. But uh, it's the city is a, uh, is a young city. It's rebellious here. People are free thinkers and, uh, it's uh, a, wor- a working class town in the way of uh, from the lumber times. It's still that kind of thing. Uh, like Detroit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still got that kind of vibe. Yeah. Working class town. Well, interesting, interesting you should mention that. Let's talk a little bit about Detroit heritage and influence. That's something that was common to the four of us. Uh, uh, we all came from parts of town that perhaps didn't afford young, young people the kinds of life opportunities that somebody from a tonier place might take for granted. Uh, life, the choices in life were either to work on the line or in a shop. And there wasn't much else, and the system was kind of architected to preserve that kind of industrial Victorian order. Uh, Mike, you're from the east side. I think you went to Finney, right? Yeah, I went to school on the east side, a few different schools, Jackson Junior High, Finney High School. Okay. And Wayne, you and Wayne, you and your brethren from the MC5 were from Lincoln Park, I think? Yeah, but I, I was all over the place. I, I grew up in, in Detroit, and then we moved downriver. Then um, I moved back to Detroit for my final year of high school. I went to Cooley. Ah, okay. Interesting. People always talk about Lincoln Park, but actually you have a stronger Detroit resonance to that. Yeah, Lincoln Um, Park was our uh, adventure into suburbia. Yeah, exactly. And Chuck and I are from the Don Riviera, but it's not to be confused with the Don Riviera, but that's another matter. So in spite of these humble upbringings, you all exhibited a fierce ambition to transcend your surroundings. And it's not exaggeration to say that the world took notice. How did your backgrounds shape your vision and maybe your concept or your ideas as young artists? Mike. Uh, well, a working class family. Uh, I, uh, my dad would uh, move into a house, fix it up, and we'd move to the next house up a little bit level higher. And we did that for four or five houses. And uh get us into a good, in a good place to live and all that. And uh, uh, my brother worked at uh, Chrysler. Uh, my mom worked in the auto industry in a, a shop. I worked in the auto industry at the, uh, uh, shops to buy a guitar, buy amps. I uh, worked either from, uh, from midnight, midnight to six or 11 o'clock to six in the morning, seven in the morning, and, uh, go to sleep and go, uh, go rehearse for a few hours. And then, you know, do, that's what it was after school after high school 
And, uh, yeah, well, um, you know, uh, Wayne knows uh, Motown, Motown and black music was a big deal in uh, Detroit. There was a lot of uh, uh, early, uh, early uh, not I don't want to call it doo-wop, but uh, vocal groups uh, were, were the big thing. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, then, then you had the Motown stuff happening. And uh, that kicked it in. And it's always been a pretty down on the street type of sound. I mean, uh, I remember I was pretty young. Well, I remember when uh, Smokey Robinson first scene came out. Uh, it's early, really street music. You felt like these guys were, uh, you, they were part of the community. Uh, Motown was part of the community at, at that time. And, uh, yeah, and uh, that moved right up into uh, the rock era when the rock era happened. It, right, the in touch. reminded me like a combination of the Who, Yardbirds, and then you could throw a little bit of James Brown showmanship in there. Show almost, but in a new era. And uh, I mean, Wayne was doing James Brown stuff mm -hmm. on guitar. He was dancing like James Brown on right. guitar, you know, and it was like, it was such, it was. He stole it all from James Brown. Yeah. Right? I don't tell you. I don't give away your secret, but no secret. Yeah, <laughs> and then uh, they has, there were a lot, a lot of bands in. Uh, I think uh, were were uh, soul bands in Detroit from the late fifties and sixties. Soul bands doing Ray Charles and and James Brown, and then they do standards. They do standards, and all the bars were m mostly older folks going mm -hmm. to bars, hearing uh, a piano bar and right. You know, the uh, lounge singers and all that. It wasn't until later when the British invasion that all the bars mm -hmm. became rock clubs, a lot of them. So, but uh, in, in Ann Arbor, what's cool being Ann Arbor is a lot like Portland. That's my comparison. Portland and Ann Arbor are kind of the, it's like Ann Arbor was, but uh, that was the new rock thing, the new uh, culture area, Wayne State and uh, Wayne State downtown Detroit. And, and Brother Wayne, how about yourself? I mean, your background, it's been documented in your biography and like, uh, how's that, how did that shape your identity earlier on musically and maybe even to this day? Because obviously people change over time, but is that still a part of your identity in terms of how you look at the world and your music? Of course. Um, well, you know, in the 60s, there was a great focus put on being original having your own sound and your own look. And um, the MC5 worked pretty hard on that. And I always felt like, I always had a kind of resentment uh, with the, the international music scene because they kind of looked down their nose at us being from Detroit. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, as if we couldn't have good ideas or, or uh, you know, breakthrough ideas or the original thought uh, that you had to be from London or you had to be from New York or you had to be from San Francisco. And it kind of um, motivated us to, to dig in even harder, you know, to, to kick out the jams kind of showed the world that, you know, we had good ideas, we were about something. And in fact, our ideas were a little more stretched out than the stuff I was hearing from London or San Francisco. So, you know, it was just really taking pride in a place that, um, you know, I always, I, I adored living in Detroit. I was proud that we made American cars in Detroit and and that we honored uh, and found nobility in hard work and hard labor. And uh, that stayed with me all my life. I mean, years and years later, when I made the mistake of trying to form a band with Johnny Thunders, it would, we would, it'd be like, come on, man, it's six o'clock, let's, let's go to work. And he'd say, man, I don't go to work, I go to play. And my perspective was always, I'm going to work. I took pride in working and, uh, you know, might, it might just be a semantic thing, but I don't think it is. I think it, it has to do with your, your general, um, you know, perspective on how you fit in the world. 
That's a very shrewd observation. And I think as I talk to many Detroiters who have been diaspora into the world, they all share that kind of identity where work has shaped you, even though you don't realize it at the time when you're younger. It becomes part of your grain, your your DNA, and you never you never lose that, no matter whether you go into creative work or otherwise. And, you know, I never realized until I started touring in the MC5 that in other cities, all the white people lived over there and all the people of color lived over here. Because in Detroit, you know, I my earliest memories are are other kids of color and and um, that other cities didn't share our knowledge and experience with organized labor, with the union movement. Mm-hmm. We all knew what yes. union meant in Detroit. You know, the United Auto Workers affected everybody and showed us that, right. that collective bargaining was the only way we could um, compete with big corporations, um, the, the yeah. auto uh, companies. So, you know, I didn't really snap to that until I was touring in the band and started realizing, shit, these people don't know anything about the union. They don't know anything about uh, about uh, people of color, of different cultures, of different music. Yeah, and it seems to drive a lot of disdain. I think people aren't familiar with that, and they, at least stateside, of what I'm seeing is that people view it very hostily. I went to a, a meeting. We tried to organize the film and TV composers out here in L.A., mm-hmm. and the National Labor Relations Board has always kind of kept us out. But mm-hmm. We had this meeting, and the Teamsters came, and they were going to take us under their wing like they had done with the casting directors. And the Teamster chief came up and he started talking and he, and he said, listen, uh, if you guys are with us and those film producers and those TV big shots start to abuse you, we will visit them with misery and agony. Uh. <laughs> and all these, all these fucking effete film composers are all at Twitter. Oh my goodness. Oh gosh. Did you hear what he said? Oh no. And I'm like, what are you guys surprised? That's the teamsters. You know, <laughs> that's how they roll. <laughs> that brass knuckles. And uh... Detroit had its, uh, what in the thirties uh, was uh, the union riots, right? In the thirties. Uh, oh yeah. Lots of them. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the story. Yeah. The stories are legendary of Harry Bennett yeah. being the the hired thug for Henry Ford, and how he marshaled all these people yeah. from the military to be pretty much headcrackers. And sure, yeah, no, it's right. it's a it's a huge thing, and it's yeah, still an issue today. I mean, granted, there you know there, the unions have an element of corruption in them themselves, but still, in principle, union is is where we want to be. Exactly. But mentioned Hollywood, Wayne, really enjoyed your soundtrack to the Cream documentary. How did your involvement with that come about? Um, they asked me to sit for an interview. And in the process of the interview, I said, who's scoring this? And they said, well, we don't know. We haven't thought. And I said, I am. <laughs> Who else should do this? I mean, I'm not only a client. Well, I want to ask. I want to ask Wayne. You had there were so many bands coming into Grandy. I mean, you were. I mean, you were had to be meeting Janis Joplin and and the, the whole band and you and Cream Yardbirds, Jimmy Page. Everybody was coming through. Oh, it was how was that? That was pretty, very exciting. Pretty, I think. I think. I think it's all, and I think in some ways Led Zeppelin, the first album, it had that Detroit thing because of you guys and because of Detroit. We affected a lot of groups, I think, Detroit. And and still do, you know, Detroit, you know, it's a tough city and it's a tough city to do something in the arts. And if you can find a way, a path to to, uh, recognition out of Detroit, um, that will sustain you well. I mean, look at um, Eminem and, and you guys in particular, when I, when I, I have to tell you, when I got back from the penitentiary, I, I started going around to clubs to see what was happening. Because when I left, there was no punk rock. And, and, uh, and when I came mm-hmm. back, someone said, you need to go see the Romantics. And I went to the Silverbird Lounge. 
and I was knocked yeah. out with you guys. You killed me. I mean, you looked great. You wore band uniforms. You had all, all red leather outfits on, and you sang good, and you played good, and I thought, all right, everything's going to be fine, man. These guys are carrying on. They're rocking it. They're holding up the tradition. Yeah, you, you had you guys are a great band. We could, yeah, yeah, that's right. And they still are. You guys were the, yeah, and you guys and a few other bands were the the influence. You know, the attitude, the way you hit, we hit our instruments different in Detroit, I think. We play them different. We hit them in different. We hear it. It's got to be, it's got to hit in you. The water. I mean, it's come, Something in the water. The bass has to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you hear that in some of your work, Mike. I remember like, um, what I like about you, there was an interesting chiming effect to your guitar on your. Was it a Rickenbacker you played on that track, or? Yeah, it was. And and I got to say, the songs that I listen, like looking at you and uh, 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 Shaken Street. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my influences and three three chord songs uh, from uh, oh god, from sixties, early sixties, the three chord Buddy Holly songs and fifties. Right. Those are the things that did it. That's I always wanted to be simple, straight ahead. Everyone was getting way off track with these 20-minute guitar, guitar solos and drum solos and keyboard solos. Rick Wakeman, you go to a show, and it's like this big – and that's what punk rock did came back. It was all kind of new wave of punk was just to get back to basics. Like the five, like the five, doing rock and roll with Chuck Berry licks and all that. And, yeah, very elemental. Yeah. That's uh, essential for honesty in music. Yeah. Well, 67 Riot's been a clarion call for these fucked-up times, and the reception for both the message – and the sound of the song has been very strong. We loved it at Rocket Night. Are there any plans for a follow-up? Uh, of, of, of more music? More, mu- more music, maybe a collaboration further with you gentlemen, I think. Oh, um, 2020, well, 20 I, Riot. Yeah. 2020 Riot. 2020 uh, Riot. Pandemic Blues, I don't know. but uh, The Pandemic uh, Blues? No, I'm just throwing that out there. But um, Wayne, uh, so I'm going to keep sending a few songs to Wayne. Yeah. Uh, and if he likes something, he, you know, maybe that'll happen, you know, or if it works out the way it works out. Happy you know. to do it. Send me everything. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, we're, well, I think kind of like this whole thing is making a lot of musicians work in different ways now, calling other people. We're sitting, we're at home. We can catch up. We can catch them at home now. They're not on the road right. or in Europe or something. And, uh, and I could call up uh, someone and say, are you free to check out, check this out, check that out? So I think it's going to happen more and more. Has it changed, for, for all of you on the call, has it changed how you're approaching and thinking about music? Because the whole process of the protocol of getting a student, no offense, Chuck, but finding a studio and getting somewhere, is it more intimate now where you can perhaps create something more intimately and then share it with a collaborator and have it be a kind of a tighter uh, feedback loop? Or have you seen any kind of difference when it comes to that? that process i chuck has i i see amazing humans right now um collaborating and just sending it off to guys like me to finish yeah. up and it, it's it, I, I i've seen i've seen people talk that i would never have thought in a million years would have worked together in the last six months and it's it's really it's exciting um and i think i think having be, you know, being from Detroit, I think a lot of people uh, um, are looking to the musical cities to kind of guide some of these musicians right, right now who are, they're, they're lost they're I mean, they're not lost musically, but they're lost humanitarian wise, not in their belief system, but in just, they're confused as to how they're to go forward with their careers, you know? I'm sure you guys could add to that. Yeah, well, there's there's no money. <laughs> you hit it, Wayne. You hit it right there. The hedge fund guys took all the money, and the, the ISPs um, make all the money off of our work, and they don't pay us. You can't you can't make a living as a session player, or you can barely make a living touring. Streaming is a downfall, yeah, I'm afraid. Until there's a new paradigm that figures out how to pay the creators, we're in a tough spot. That's correct. That is very correct. You, you've become you've become a merchandising machine. You know, you you basically have turned into the rock and roll gap. You know, 
the store, the gas. Right. It's like you pray to God that you can sell T-shirts and merch just to cover your bus money, you know, or like, I think Vlad, we talked about mm-hmm. this before. Yep. It's like, it, it, unfortunately the art is, has, has been so watered down. Um, and that's why I work with guys like Mike and Wayne and, and the veterans, because I mean, the, the thought processes behind everything is, is about work. And a lot of these younger artists, they're starving because they've relied on, just touring and and they haven't monetized all of their talents as as well as they should you know right you know people don't have any money to spend you know it's it's really sad right now so you you give them the music and sell them a shirt that's exactly right exactly wayne that's exactly what i was saying is that wrong is that right who knows you know you used to be the other way. It used to be the other way. Exactly, Vlad. It was the other way. You'd buy a single or an album. They'd throw in a, like a promotional tchotchke. And now... Uh, and it, I don't see it debating. I think if you work in the digital culture, you see that the the, the desire to, to further commoditize any experiences or interactions, as they call it, makes... Uh, it just cheapens even more so. And they view artists and content creators as merely being data dumping points they're now looked at as uh, as artists and until that changes and the system changes we're kind of being this quagmire well it's, it's up to us to as i mean i can't speak for wayne and mike but as far as you know i'm a little younger but i have nothing but respect for for those those moments that, that they have created and um I try to instill that in the younger artists that I produce. Um, and it's really, it, I think kids are scared to take it to another level where, you know, getting in a van and just playing your ass off and, and, and playing songs. Now these kids are, they're, they're getting Apple music streamed for nine ninety nine a month. Are you kidding me? You can listen to like a hundred million songs. It's like, right. we, yeah. it, it I always, I always refer to the, when you go to see a movie and you always see the stunt man do the, do the shindig and at the beginning of the movie and, and then the message comes up, don't steal movies. Cause I'm risking my life making this movie so you can eat your popcorn and, and your, and your frothy drink. And, and, you know, it's the same thing with music. You know, we, we bust our ass, right? We bust our ass. All my friends are losing trillions of dollars right now. Like, touring and all the techs all the i mean it's just quagmire that is that is the best word i i think it's 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 such monumental shit times as far as see when there were riots were going on when when michael and wayne were talking about people could still work you you could still have some sort of sensibility of, of work People can't even go outside right now, you know, let alone make any money. And and I think that's what Wayne was attesting to. And Michael, they were just saying, you know, it was just um, it was just very stressful times, you know, right uh, at the back then. But now it's like it's it, it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. You know, there's no films and TV in production uh, or as much as there was, you know, a smaller on a smaller scale. So no songs are getting, uh, no new songs are getting taken from bands or, or writers, like Wayne's saying, and uh, less work for Wayne for, for yeah. doing movies. I saw your post. Movies are coming out. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, they're just getting back into it, I guess, slowly. But, um, you know, just that whole uh, uh, money stream from that industry. I read that the uh, uh, music industry, and it's not unbelievable that it's larger, it's larger than agriculture. Yeah. Just the agriculture in America is what we do is like so huge, uh, money wise. They come generated. Well, the, you know the the hip hop guys um, and women seem to, you know, if if they control the means of production, um, they are realize some of you know at the very top of the pyramid, they're realizing uh, profits and mm-hmm. and. Uh, and uh, you know, getting paid, uh, but you know, even that, you know, these are Faustian deals that you that they make these three sixty yeah. deals, um, and they look good, and you know, they can make an expensive video, 
but they have to pay for all that. And, and at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know, there's, there's generally, there's usually no money left. I mean, the caterer gets paid before the artist. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. They're making a deal with the devil. Yeah, I mean, this is not tough. this is not a good time for a life in the arts. <laughs> I would discourage young people from from uh, attempting it, awesome. but they That's don't the listen to me anyway. So I wouldn't listen to me. Hmm. You have to do this because you love doing it. You love the process of of creating music, of uh, bringing <laughs> your friends in, and and talking about what you're doing and going out and trying to win people over. Yeah, mm -hmm. If you don't love all of that, then you can't do this kind of stuff. This, mm -hmm. you know, cause there, there, there's virtually no money in it. Um, you know, this is a, this is a, it's a tough game right now. Interestingly, hearing all of your stories here, it takes, takes us back to how you all started from a point of love in your career. You're, you had a love for justice, you had a love for for rhythm and music and the like, and that that compelled you. And well, there are periods of time in which obviously it was more lucrative, or at least it was able to sustain you better. Now your deal, you have that 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 one tangible thing that that no, well, actually intangible thing from when you started that love that's carrying you f forward, that's uh, that's sustaining you. And it's not ironic; it's not coincidental. Yeah, yeah, the that's my. The past, past passion is, is passed on generation generationally. Like I'm willing to be me to people, you know, it just goes on and on. And uh, I was going to say, uh, Chuck just did a, you did a record with Ivan Kral. He had to go, I mean, he, it was huge in, in Czechoslovakia, but here you don't even know it's around. So he probably made a few dollars on that, but that's a good example of, you got to go out, do what you can do. I, I just got to go. Yeah. He went to where the people supported him, you know, it's really interesting. And, and as everyone knows, I mean, and Vlad, we've talked about this before. The stories I've heard from Ivan, you know, just from working with Jim and, and Iggy and, um, and Blondie and all these amazing humans and, 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 the, and, and, and the passion that was behind it. And the scene, it, like, again, like what Wayne and Michael said, it was street music with support groups. It was hardworking people who, who, you know, wanted to just catch a break, man, and just spread that love. And, and we always talked about, Ivan always called me Bubba. He'd always say, Bubba, you don't, you don't, you don't love what you do. You, you, you are what you do. And basically he was saying in his thought process was, it's just, it's just me. And it's not a, it's, it's, it's not a labor of love. It's a love of labor, you know, it's, and that's what I think went into 67 riot was Michael had a story to tell and we brought it out. And, and, and Wayne was, Wayne was our, Wayne was our champion who, who put the cherry on top, you know, and, and what an honor for me to work with both of these gentlemen and, you know, Mike and I were just like little kids talking about Wayne while we're working on this song. And, you know, we just, we just, and Wayne's an extreme gentleman and, and cares about his, his love and his passion for what he's done. I mean, I mean, we can't even name, I mean, we could sit here for five weeks and we still wouldn't even talk about all the accomplishments of Wayne and Michael let alone myself, not even close to these two, but, you know, it's an honor just to even just sit on this Zoom, you know, so. It's an honor for me, certainly. So, Michael, what's uh, what's next up with you? What projects or what uh, endeavors are you uh, looking at next? Well, you, can't, I, you can't force, uh, in my opinion, you can't force songs like 67 Rides, so you can't really, like, it's got to come together uh, organically and uh, I um, I recorded a, a bunch of those tunes and uh, I gave them to Chuck Chuck uh, mixed them so I've got a few more left to release this year so I think I'll get one more single out maybe and uh, hopefully an EP and then a long player uh, an album so that's in the next you know within the next six months or so something like that 
And we'll just kind of state how we, uh, however we can with this whole thing. I don't know, you know, playing live, there's not much playing live right now, so. Keep singing, Mike. Mike, keep singing, man. You're a good singer. Keep singing. I love your, your the sound of your Thanks, voice. Man. Yes, You're a good singer. Very good. Thank you. Uh, all we can do is uh, just keep going forward, and uh, I don't know what to say. Much more than that. Mike has so many songs. It's funny. It's uh, Mike's got hard drives and hard drives. I'm sure. I'm sure Wayne does too, as I do as well. And um, I think um, the difficulty is going. We can take any song and make it fun and awesome. It's just like we we try to look for the meaningful things, the things that the, the legacy, the leave the legacy, you know, I mean, that's kind of where I think all bands should be right now. You know, we, we came from this really big thing out of like from Detroit. I mean, it's really a, it was a really a passionate thing and it's, it's something that it just won't go away. It's something in us. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's on us. It's in, I can't stop doing what I do and Wayne can't, you know, it's can't just, stop. Won't stop. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say before in Detroit, there was a huge jazz scene at the time. I mean, the fifties and you saw Baker's keyboard lounge and the five used to go off into these jazz, uh, 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 flourishes and, uh, and, and avant-garde and kind of like, uh, just, uh, really, uh, I, I don't know how to describe it, but mm-hmm. it's just uh, like a really free for, free form. It's really a free form thing. They put with this. It was really good and uh, like bebop. Well, well the next form. the next stage after post bebop, with yeah. the coming of uh, in the in the uh, mid '60s, you know, uh, Archie Shep and yeah. John Coltrane and Sun Ra and Albert Eiler and Cecil Taylor. Mm-hmm. There was a whole movement in jazz that broke away from bebop and and improvising melodies over standards uh, to a newer uh, and I'd like to think more pure sonic dimension. It was a huge influence on uh, me and the MC5 because I, you know, I had to answer the question, if I'm playing my best Chuck Berry solo, what, where's the next step? How do I go one step beyond? And I got the answer in the free jazz movement. So we embrace that completely. Mm-hmm. And I think Mike mentioned um, an important uh, consideration in that Detroit has always been the home of great musicians. Uh, going back to the 20s and 30s, uh, if the big band leaders needed new musicians, they would go to Detroit to find them because of the great music programs at Northwestern yep. and at Cast Tech. They would produce the highest caliber players that all the band leaders wanted. And, and that continued uh, through the, the bebop era and the small groups. And then with the coming of rhythm and blues, I mean, that Motown recording band, the Funk Brothers, those were all bebop players. They were jazz musicians, but they didn't play down to pop music. They applied everything they knew about harmony and syncopation and rhythm to popular music, which is, you know, it's still some of the most sophisticated songwriting um, in the world. Yeah, very transcendent. Well, finally, yeah. from one expat Detroit to another, I got to ask you before we drop off the call, when you get back into town, into Detroit, what's the food or dining establishment that you always have a hankering for the most? <laughs> Italian. <laughs> <laughs> well, it used, to be, yeah, it used to be Coney Islands and stuff like that, but then you had uh, Greek food, and now you've got Arabic and Lebanese food. It's been huge in Detroit for years before it's gotten right. out to the, the world and in, to America. I went, I grew up uh, next door to uh, Lebanese kids I played with, and I learned, and they had this kibbe, whatever that was, when I was, you know, in the 60s. No one else knew that. I mean, that's just getting around now out, out here and uh, whatever. There's just a big, just like music, there's a ton of great food in Detroit. Yeah, there's great food in Detroit. My wife is Lebanese, so yep. I know all about kibbe and, and fatouche yep. and, and tabbouleh. Yep, there you we go. have it all the time. 
Um, I, you know, Checker Barbecue is always one of my favorites in Detroit. Um, the soul food is is world class. So, but you know, Indeed. you're right. I mean, I agree with you anyway. That that uh, Detroit has good eating. There's a lot of good restaurants in Detroit. Good food. <laughs> I mean, these are people that work hard, and you know, you, you work hard, you play hard, and you want to have, uh, you know put something in your cake hole that matters. <laughs> you got to remember, Detroit was a smoky, dirty factory town in the, in the 50s and 60s. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, it, it, 24 hours a day, they were making cars. It, wasn't, it wouldn't stop at mm-hmm. nine to five. It was 24 hours right. a day. Yeah. Right. And I think there was a lot of uh, tension because uh, I don't, uh, black folks were getting the jobs and the pay with the car companies. I don't even, they may, may have been floor sweepers or I'm not even sure if they were on the line at the time back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so well, they, were, they got, they got, they were last hired, first fired yeah. and they got the worst jobs on yeah. the shop floor, the most and dangerous they, jobs, yeah. the most toxic jobs. And, and, you know, I mean, the reasons behind the rebellion of 1967 uh, were that people of color, black people in particular, did not share in the prosperity that white Detroiters um, experienced. Um, They didn't share in it economically, they didn't share in it culturally, and they didn't share in it politically. They were, they were, they were elbowed outside of the, of the, of, of life in Detroit. And, and then you add the Detroit Police Department um, coming down on them, um, just like they've always done, um, it's, it's no surprise that the, that the place didn't burn down sooner. <laughs> the white, white and white, all white police department. Yeah. All white, white, all white shop foreman. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're and, asking for it. <laughs> no, I, I always thought that there were the six, six the, the white flight from Detroit was, had a um, reason because when Malcolm X and, um, uh, Martin Luther King came to town in 62, I think it was, or three, it freaked everybody out on the east side of Detroit. The, the long parade, there was like 100,000 people down there, yeah. most black, black folks. The east side, people started moving out to the suburbs right away after that. They were flipping out, really. Well, they, re- they really moved after the rebellion. And, you know, that's when everybody in Detroit started buying guns. Yeah. And then, you know, where... Before the, the before then, if two neighbors had an argument, they might have a fist fight, and someone gets a bloody nose. And afterwards, they they're all strapped, and they you know they break out their shit and they start shooting. Yeah. I mean, you know, a, a city of uh, just over a million people with nine hundred homicides a year. You know that's, whew. but the, you know that that has to do with larger. Uh, economic forces, you know, the, that the, the big three came in and, and uh, raked all the money off. And, and then when uh, uh, the Japanese and the Koreans came up with better ideas for cars, they took their money and went home. They moved their plants to Kentucky where there was no unions. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, and you end up with a city full of workers and no work. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, desperate times uh, make people desperate and they start doing desperate things. And, uh, you know, heroin flooded the city and the result was, uh, you know, chaos. Yes. And, the, and the, really the destruction of what was once a great American city. Yeah. It's great. I mean, less than, less than 700,000 people in the city of Detroit today. There are still veins of greatness there, but you're seeing a lot of the social vestiges of better times and better, uh, or at least grander times, and try yeah. to revitalize. Well, I mean, they're trying, and yeah. you know, I support them a hundred percent. I do what I can to help, but it's tough there without without a an industry or a, a manufacturing uh, base. You know, I think Detroit probably one day could be Portland, you know, a nice, small American city, but it'll never be what it was in the 60s and and in the 70s. 
Yeah, 50s, 60s. Exactly. Well, gentlemen, it's poetically appropriate you've regaled us tonight with entertaining tales and provoking thoughts as you've always done with your art. As Detroiters past and present, we're deeply proud of how you represent us with energetic eloquence and conscience, and I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Thanks, Thank you, Val. Very elucidating. It's been a pleasure. So that wraps up our conversation for tonight. Look for Mike Steele's 67 Riot single on all streaming platforms and at MikeSteele.com. And look for his amazing vinyl pressing that just came out from Third Man Records. That's a nice way to keep it in the Detroit family, man. So kudos to that. Oh, good. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for seeing that. I, I just yeah. got mine, Mike. And I got this. I just Thank got you. this today. Looks I just, just got this yeah, today. there it is. I'm, re- I'm reading it. I've been reading it. Uh-huh. The right. hard stuff. No floppy disk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how's that work? Huh. How do you bootleg that thing? <laughs> Can I rip there that? Are ways. Chuck has ways. Yeah. And catch Wayne Kramer's soundtrack to the Cream documentary, now available for on demand at all streaming platforms. And pay attention to the, the yeah. foundation for sonic rehabilitation of people in the penal system. That's a very admirable effort you're doing, Wayne. Thank you. It's the jailguitardoors.org if anyone wants to learn what we do and how we do it and they want to help. We have uh, 2.3 million of our fellows behind lock and key today. And if, if we don't do something to help them change for the better while they're in custody, they will most certainly change for the worse. And 95% of them are coming home someday and they're going to sit next to you at the movies if we ever get to go back right. to the movies and they'll stand next to you in line six feet apart at the supermarket. So we can do something now to mitigate the damage. Go to jailguitardoors.org and help us out. Well put. And Chuck Alcazian has a never ending stream of productions on his plate. I especially fancy his recent uh, run of 80s covers, and you can find them on all major streaming platforms. So shout out to you, Chuck, as well. Thanks, Vlad. I appreciate it. It's just a fun little project I'm doing just to uh, just to bring some happiness to some people. Yes, indeed. And I'd be most remiss if I didn't acknowledge the immense help we got from Gina Giuliano at Unleashed Music in making this conversation happen. Gina, you're the best, and thank you again. Gina, thank you. Gentlemen. Peace and health, and I wish you all the best, and maybe uh, talk again uh, in the future. Thank you. See ya. Thanks, guys. See you, guys. You're listening to Rock at Night. The introductory song, Get On Down, is from blues artist Billy, Billy Bass Alford. Look for his music at ReverbNation.com.